Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the normal bitcheries and qualms by watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. This week, we are talking about Rags, specifically the original Broadway production's performance on August 10th, 1986. This recording is extremely accessible. You should be able to find it as the first thing that pops up when you search it. We mention this because while we review the show itself, we also talk about the specific performance that we've seen. You know the internet. It's your friend, Dalink. So, without further ado, the curtain is now rising. A musical about immigrant Jews. Sounds real happy. Did Disney produce this show? Please enjoy our discussion of the original Broadway production of Rags. You know, we've been talking for about 45 minutes here. We should eventually start to talk. Actually. Uh, I guess. Fair enough. Okay. What, what show do you want to talk about? We didn't watch Dreamgirls this week. Oh, did... Uh, uh... Yeah! Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, we, we did, did not. No, no, no. We did not. No, he, we totally... We absolutely... So, so what do you want to talk about? We watched Rags. We might as well talk about Rags. You... You want to what? We should talk about Rags. He wants to talk about Rags. Unheard of. Absurd. You want to talk about Rags? Unthinkable! This is a bad bit. This is a bad bit. You're referencing Fiddler on the Roof? Not all Jewish shows are the same, Joshua. God, you're such a fucking anti-Semite. He wants to talk about rags. And you know what? Broadway flop. (laughs) Four performances only. On the other hand... You know what? It's music by Charles Strauss and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. You are now making a Fiddler reference, but we should point out that here in 2021, you just watched Fiddler for the first time last week, and only because you got a ticket to that Jackie Hoffman from Macero play. And you were like, I guess I'm not going to understand Jackie Hoffman if I don't watch Fiddler, so now I guess I have to watch Fiddler. It was like pulling such teeth out of you to fucking watch Fiddler. And we also had this on the schedule, so you knew you needed to watch Fiddler because this is although not a literal sequel a spiritual sequel to fiddler but god getting you to watch musicals on the other hand quite a stacked cast we have on the other hand no tony wins on the other hand i have somewhere to be later today let's get to the point Ah, I can have no fun on this podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Today, we are talking about uh, the smash success Broadway musical Rags from Rags. 1986. Rags. <laughs> starring it's starring Rags Carol Channing. It's yeah. Rags to eat. It's the latest look on Delancey Street like old Oh, this fags. is too much. This is too much. It's all oh, to see them all day shelling them. All day listening to peddlers <laughs> shelling them. Rags. I would pay money for this cover, Dan. <laughs> so, Rags. You ever heard of this show, Dan? Yes. Yes, Tell I've me about it. This show. Well, uh, how did I first hear of Rags? I don't know. You tell me. I guess I first saw the Tony Award performance and was like, oh, this oh, is sure. a really good song. 
And then I got the cast album. I've had the cast album for... Well, not the cast album. I've had the studio cast recording with most of the members of the original cast, but certain people are missing. I've had that thing for years, and I've never, like, listened to the full thing, but I've listened to, like, 80% of it. There's just been songs that I have continually skipped along the way, but I was intimately familiar with a good 80% of the score. Neat. And then I've heard many a story. Uh, what many did you know about Rags? Uh, very, very little. Well, you had I never had seen heard... Fiddler. Yeah, I hadn't seen Fiddler until rather recently. Uh, as I, uh, I watched it recently for the first time, God, God, I don't know if you ever heard about this Fiddler musical, but you know, it has something going Jesus for it. Christ. Um, I, I, I heard everything from, uh, Rags is tangentially related to Rags is a straight up sequel. And I never really knew what the answer was. And then I watched it and the, the character you see come on stage first is called Avram. And I went, is, so is, is that Tevye's brother? And then uh, was and then that was not Tevya's brother, uh, so it sort of lost me after that, and I didn't end up uh, watching the rest of the show. Uh, I am just <laughs> kidding. I watched the show. <laughs> Great. Uh, no, I knew I knew nothing. I knew none of the songs. I might have seen maybe a clip of the Tony Award performance. I, I heard a story about the Tony Award performance and about the cast of Judy Kuhn's other show that she was doing that season. The name escapes my mind. Um, and the other cast of oh, Judy she was Kuhn's in show. In, yeah, the, in the 1986 uh, Tony season. I can't remember the, what it was called. It ran for, like, a couple weeks. Um, okay. So the cast of Les Mis is, is standing in the wings, waiting to go on for their Tony performance. Uh, and the company of rags goes on for their performance. And everyone just sort of looks up at, like, the speakers in the back and just go, Is that Judy? The, the, the entire company straight up did not know not only that Judy had the entire company. Terrence Mann was so fucking high backstage. He forgot that he was in another show with (laughs) Judy Kuhn that season. Wouldn't he have been on the performance? No, the rags performance was her and Dick Latessa. That's it. Well, I I know there was the story. uh, They told us on uh, stars in the house recently. I think it was Judy telling it where they all, they all completely did not realize that Judy was in rags and, so were just perplexed that that was her singing and didn't know that she could belt. It, w- it was a very disorienting experience for all. Well, and also, I believe it was supposed to be Teresa Stratus doing Children of the Wind, only her plane got canceled or she missed a plane oh like 48 hours before the Tony Awards. And so they called Judy Kuhn in a worry saying, you think you can sing the title number? I, I, I'm surprised that they didn't just go with that song like originally because I, I i love children of the wind a lot but the song rags tells you everything about the show doesn't it it was Teresa stratus clearly you don't know who Teresa stratus is i do know she was the lead in rags she was pretty much the number one opera diva in existence when she randomly took a job in a broadway musical <laughs> she was a I'm not surprised major, to hear that. It's major name. We will talk more about Teresa Stratus later, but sure. She was this was a major get. And if you can have Teresa Stratus performing at the Tony Awards, you're going to have Teresa Stratus performing at the Tony Awards. 
No offense to Judy Kuhn again. I, I, why am I being angry with Judy Kuhn this episode? No offense to Judy Kuhn. No one knew who Judy Kuhn was in 1986. Everybody Not knew yet. who yeah. Teresa Stratus was. She was a major opera diva. I'm very excited to talk about her. I have, I, I, I have questions now. I now have questions for you. Uh-huh. Okay, well, let's just jump into talking about the show itself, then. Why don't we? Sure. Um, I don't necessarily want to talk about the takeaway right away. I just want to summarize okay. Rags. Okay? We have sure. this musical, Rags, and there is a title song, title song named Rags, of course. And uh-huh. in the title song of Rags, you get storytelling through the art of dance. You get a beautiful summation of the show. And ultimately, you get a loud brass section, high belting, and sounds of Jewish anguish. If this is not the literal definition of what musical theater is, I don't know what is. Loud brass, loud belting, Jewish pain. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just your argument, it's the way you state your cases. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'll hand it to you. That's musical theater. <laughs> that is textbook definition of musical theater. You want someone to know what musical theater is? Show them the title number of rags. Oh my gosh. I I think... I think the takeaway of rags for myself is immigrants, then boom, communism. That's rags. <laughs> I think they should put that on the poster verbatim. Um, my takeaway from rags, and I think the one thing the show really accomplishes, and the one thing they undid when they went to rewrite it, but more on that later. Mm. What is so brilliant about this musical? Is it perfectly engenders what America is. Hmm. The immigrants arrive because they have heard tales of hope. That hope is dashed quite suddenly and quite significantly. You have to muddle along and try and figure out how to live your life without hope. America will then kick you when you are already down and they will kick you quite violently which will then lead to angry, violent change. Without losing hope and without getting kicked when you're down, no change happens in this country. God, I wonder why this show didn't succeed on Broadway. Oh, I, I mean, it, it's very depressing. And it is a complete indictment of America. I don't think they realized they wrote an indictment of America. I really don't think Stephen Schwartz realizes he wrote an indictment of America. <laughs> but the entire show is a total indictment of America. I'm not going to lie. I think it is beautiful. I think it is apt. It is not something that you leave feeling good about yourself. But God damn it, do I like it. I honestly would buy that Stephen Schwartz completely does not realize that he has written an indictment of America. I don't think Rags displays itself as anything else. And I also would be completely nonplussed if he were to just go, Oh, well, I, I respect those interpretations. It's very, it's, it's, I get the same vibes I get from him as I do from like Maury Yeston, where he just comes and does the shit and it ends up being like, <laughs> Really fucking brilliant. And he just goes, oh, yeah, I suppose. 
<laughs> Not far off from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. No, but do you get what I'm saying? No, completely. You're correct. Hope. hope is dashed. They try and figure out what to do now that they don't have hope. Uh, they kick you when you're down. That's Bella dying. And then immediately, only when you have nothing and you've still been getting kicked, then there comes violent change. And that's the entire story of America. That's the story of the settlers arriving leading up to July 4th and mm. the Revolutionary War. Uh-huh. It's History is cyclical. What do you say we jump into this material? Where would you like to start? You know, you know what we should first talk about? I, I sent you a message and I said this should be our first topic. Go read that message to the audience. Dan's message reads, The first topics are shows born flops or is floppiness thrust upon them? Beautifully no, worded. Joshua. Um, Joshua, explain to the audience why you don't realize that is a direct quote from Wicked only turn flop into wicked i reworded it but it's really a direct quote from the opening number of wicked and you didn't even realize that and you just looked like a fool so go ahead and explain to the audience so what happened was (laughs) he hung up he hung up on me (laughs) hey everyone Uh... welcome back to the unauthorized critic circle today we're going to be talking about rags this is our first time covering a Stephen Schwartz show. Have you ever even seen a Stephen Schwartz show? Yeah, I'd seen Hunchback. Endless. Okay. I listen. You've never seen Wicked. You've never listened to Wicked. Listen, you, you and I, you and I are. Of what Wicked is. We have another Stephen Schwartz show down the pipeline. We don't have a schedule, but we know which Stephen Schwartz show we want to talk about. So that oh oh yeah he did Godspell yeah 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 okay I've seen two Stephen Schwartz shows okay Godspell I've also seen Godspell yeah I've also um, I've I've also seen Godspell do you have an answer to the question or did you just want to embarrass me on the podcast here's what happened originally Stephen Schwartz came on to Rags as a director oh and Charles Strauss was writing the score with Hal David. Hal David, formerly of Burt Bacharach and Hal David, who wrote okay. Promises, Promises. The score they were coming up with was too poppy. After that, they realized, hey, Stephen Schwartz, you're already in the room. Uh, why don't you do the lyrics? So they did an early workshop. Stephen Schwartz directed with Nina Faso. Faso? Faso? I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, and... At the end of the workshop, Stephen Schwartz said, Hey, we have a lot of storytelling issues, uh-huh. and I can't fix the lyrics and work on these storytelling issues if I'm going to direct this, so um, we need to find a director. And at that point, they went around searching for directors. They really had two people interested. They couldn't find other people. The only two people interested were Martin Charnin, who did Annie with Charles Strauss. Right. And Joan Milliken Silver. Charles Strauss said, I've worked with Martin Charnin. Uh, let's go with Joan Milliken Silver. (laughs) (laughs) So they went with Joan Milliken Silver, and she had directed the movie Hester Street, which was about Jewish immigrants in the same part of town at the same time period as Rags, that kind of made sense. 
Well, they got into rehearsals, and she had never directed a show on stage before, and she was having problems figuring out how to get people on and off stage. So, yeah, uh, she was fired about three weeks into her rehearsals. Oh my God. And Stephen Schwartz and Charles Strauss kind of directed the show themselves. And then they opened, they got out of town to Boston. And Teresa Stratus, prone to cancellation in the opera world, uh-huh. loved to cancel, just loved to cancel. They got out of town in Boston. And Teresa Stratus took the first week of the run off and had the understudy go on. So the show got reviewed out of town with the understudy in the role. Hoy. Uh, because she decided that the show doesn't have a director. I will direct. So she sat out in the audience and she watched and she gave direction. And the producers realized... We're paying a lot for a star who's not appearing in the show. What's going on here? This can't stand. This isn't going to work out. So then they called in B. Arthur's husband, a genius in his own rights, Gene Sachs. And Gene Sachs had directed the original production of Mame. He had directed most of the original Neil Simon plays, original productions of Neil Simon plays. He's was a well-established director, but you're on a time crunch, and he fixed as much as he could. It was also at this time they called in Ron Field to choreograph. Uh-huh. So they went to New York. Uh, they opened. They didn't get the best reviews. We'll talk about why we think that happened. And, Yeah. The producers decided to close the show within four performances. I would understand if this was a case of, you know, there were backstage issues and there was someone fumbled a ball or audiences just weren't interested and it ran for, I don't know, like two months. Three probably, but I would get like two months. But with material as strong as this to have some previews and four performances is really shocking to me. Here is what I do know. It's very expensive to fix a show out of town. Yeah. This show needed some serious fixing out of town. Also, every time someone gets fired, there's a whole legal settlement and they have to get paid and... Every person you add while you're out of town dilutes the pool, and it's less money you're bringing in at the end of the week. So, they got rid of Hal David how many years ago? I don't know if Hal David still makes anything from this show. Uh, They got rid of Joan Milliken Silver, Uh and I don't know if Stephen Schwartz was ever considered enough of a director to start (laughs) adding into the director's pool, but they would have had other people in besides just Gene Sachs to take over. They had to replace the original choreographer with Ron Lewis. They got Gene Sachs in. I'm sure he was not cheap. I think what happened was the out-of-town spending got so incredibly out of hand Mm -hmm. that when they opened and the reviews didn't look great and also they weren't looking at a great advance 
they decided they needed to just cut the losses where they were at. My because God. the more you run, the more loss you incur. This is also a decent point to make just about how theater has changed. Uh-huh. There's no social media. So once those reviews come out at this time, if they aren't good, you're not going to sit around waiting for word of mouth. Yeah. It's not going to happen. It simply just will not happen. You won't get word of mouth. Huh. What confuses me, though, you have Stratus. Stratus is a major star. Did she bring in nobody? Were the opera queens just, like, so completely opera queens that they wouldn't follow Teresa Stratus to a Broadway musical because she's <laughs> being a traitor to the art form? Is there a real lack of reverence for musical theater and opera circles? I'll tell you this, Helen Trouble uh, took Pipe Dream, which was a Rodgers and Hammerstein show in the height of the Rodgers and Hammerstein time. She was a name at the Met, and Rudolph Bing told her, you can take that Broadway show, and that's fine. Have a nice career. You will never work at the Met again. Fuck's sake. Because he, yeah. I'm not going to have a lounge singer on my stage, I believe, was the phrase. Wow. And Teresa Stratus couldn't give a fuck. I mean, she's going to do what she wants to do in her career. We'll talk more about that. Um, but she wanted to do a Broadway musical. She liked this. She took this, and she's excellent in it. Uh-huh. But she's, this is also, she was the number one star at the Met. This is the time when the Met used to sell out. That's 4,000 seat houses. And she performed some 300 some performances at the Met. How did people not make the transition over to rags? It might be that. It might be just a, a disregard for the art form. <sighs> Maybe. I guess let's now jump into the material itself. I adore the music for Rags. I'd have to say it. I think there are some songs that maybe work better than others, and some songs that might end up not flowing so well structurally in terms of the layout of the musical, but the songs in and of themselves are strong, and Charles Strauss writes some fantastic, fantastic stuff. Um especially when paired with Steven Schwartz's uh, lyrics, and we will get to those later. But I just overall thought that the score itself was very strong. We're talking about 1986. I, two days ago, saw Me and My Girl, which was also from 1986. Sure. I can say at this point, I've seen the huge musicals of 1986, or some weren't very successful, but... I've seen Smile, I've seen Me and My Girl, I've seen Rags. Far and away, not even close, Rags has the best score of that season. Because, you know, the 80s really was a brutal time for Broadway, both in terms of, I guess, the kind of shows that were being brought forward, especially with the, the explosion of the British mega-musical, but also just in terms of, I guess, really looking at what audiences were going to take in and what those critical receptions were. Um, if you think about a lot of the shows in the 80s, a good number of them 
especially the ones that I guess we still talk about today or the ones that have still seen success, uh, were pretty terribly reviewed by critics. There were a lot of shows that have had huge legacies that were really panned in the 80s. Look, I think what happened in the 80s is that the audiences clearly were loving these mega musicals. The influence of Stephen Sondheim also cannot be understated. And Stephen Sondheim... For all intents and purposes, whether you liked it or not, he had advanced the musical in such different ways that Stephen Sondheim's advances looked like the beginning of something. And 40, 50 years later, we can look back and say, they kind of were the end. We don't experiment in the ways that Stephen Sondheim experimented. And so you see something like The Rink... Mm. Which, Another show that just sort of died out. Yeah, that we loved. Yeah. But you see something like The Rink had moments of experimentation, but for most intents and purposes, it's not experimenting in the same way as Company. And I think what happened was the critics started to kill the shows that were solidly, some solidly made, some more speciously made, but the shows that were advancing in a different way than Stephen Sondheim. Right. Because they thought the entire art form was going in a different direction than it ended up going. And then the British came in and completely changed the entire course. Mm-hmm. So you had these British shows that were not very well reviewed. And you had pieces like The Rink and Rags, which I think... There's so much to like in both of those shows. They both got pretty bad reviews. I think because the critics were expecting something to come along that never happened. Sure. They were expecting a different type of theater that never came to fruition. And so now looking back all these years later, we're looking at these pieces... Again, The Rink and Rags are the two from this decade that we've talked about that were not successful. I'll say it openly. I absolutely loved Rags. And we'll talk about the revisions. I don't necessarily like the revisions. I think... We'll talk about this with the book, but I think the subject matter demands a sprawling show that is not easy to figure out. I think it demands flaws. I think the subject matter demands that the show is flawed. Interesting. And I think they went in, they saw the flaws, they saw it was in some ways regressive towards past theater. I mean, certainly you have three sunny rooms. That feels like something out of the 50s or the 60s. It feels like a pineapple from Cabaret or something. Uh Uh-huh. And they're not giving credit where credit is due. They're dismissing in hopes that something better will come along. And something better they, never did come along. So they see this, like, ramping up towards majesty in musical theater, probably propelled by the Stephen Sondheim works. They see these works accelerating towards, like... Well, you get company, and company doesn't have a plot, and neither really does Follies. You have these ruminations on a theme. And... and yeah. And, and, and they Todd all... was completely unexpected. 
merrily we roll along okay well they hated that show but then he came back and rags is after sunday in the park with george which once again playing around with timelines completely experimental with the second act doesn't necessarily tell the same story as the first act and so they track or at least they're trying to track this progression of we are ramping up to the pinnacle of storytelling and because they've ramped themselves up to such an expectation when they see something that doesn't look like it's meeting what they anticipate that picture to look like they dismiss Mm -hmm. it as regressive or they dismiss it as less than or just a a a non uh, non entity yeah a non-entity because it doesn't match what they've been picturing will happen whether or not they know it really will yeah it's not their expectations of what the form is going to be Exactly, which is an insane standard. Well, I think it happens every generation. Unfortunately. I don't necessarily fault the critics. Rags is not a perfect show. I don't think they're wrong for saying... Yeah, no, I'm certainly not arguing that. Yeah, I don't think they're wrong for pointing out that Rags is not a perfect show. What I take more issue with with the critics is that you didn't give enough credit to what was good and what was working. Yeah. For, for, for me, it felt like the, the, the reception of this show, of course you can say a bad show is a bad show, but to write off what works about this show and what makes this show strong, I feel, is, you know, of course you can, if you look at it holistically and it ends up being a bad show, sure, it's a bad show, but you have to at least pay credit to what works, right? At least with Rags, I also think we have to remember this is the 1980s. The AIDS epidemic has begun, but the wave Mm. of deaths are starting to happen, but aren't front and center. Reagan is president. We are at the ultimate height of American exceptionalism and greed is good and we are the best country in the world. America, rah, rah. And here comes in this show that is an indictment on how America fails and how nothing is accomplished until you're kicked down and there is violent revolution. And I think the message of the show does not match the message of the times that was in popular culture and just popular sentiment. Damn shame. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. What works for you with the score, specifically? Uh, Charles Strauss studied with Aaron Copeland for a long period of time, was a disciple of Aaron Copeland, and then went on to work with Nadia Boulanger in France. And Nadia Boulanger heard some of his pop songs and said, you know, your classical material is very good, and if this is what you want to do with your life, I support you, but your pop songs and your more Broadway material what you're doing is more complicated than what they're doing but in an accessible way and I think that is where your real talent lies and so I think you need to go home and try and do that for a while yeah rags is where you hear the Aaron Copeland influence for me that's where Uh You hear Charles Strauss and you think, put on a happy face, and you you think, sun will come out tomorrow. And you hear Aaron Copeland and you go, what? 
Huh? The two images don't match. You get to the end of Act 1 and rags at this preview, which is a song that has never been officially recorded, but we didn't come to America to be hurt again. We didn't come to America to be dirt again. And, y you know, you have the brass. Ba -da 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 -dum. You hear Aaron Copeland. Finally, you go, there it makes sense. Now I get right. it. Now I see the influence. And even uh -huh. you go on later to the Kaddish. And this is why I say far and away the best score. There is nothing that season that is as compositionally complex as that Kaddish. Right. Nothing even approaching it. And it's so well done. Um, there are moments... I, I hate to keep pointing to Three Sunny Rooms. Three Sunny Rooms seems like not on the same level as the rest of the songs in this show. And it seems like something that probably might have been written for Bye Bye Birdie and was cut. New it lyrics. Seems... New lyrics, but it, it didn't did... seem synonymous with the surroundings. I, I, I was going to say synonymous. Yeah, it doesn't seem like symbiotic to the show. I didn't think it didn't work. I thought it was a nice it was moment fine. of like levity. I thought it was fine. I don't like where it's placed. We'll talk more about that. I think I think because the songs really for the almost the entire part don't really have a humor to them or a levity to them. They're all taken pretty seriously. Uh, you then have that in juxtaposition with a book that does have humor and does have levity. And it's a pretty funny book, or at least it tries to be. And so to have at least one song reflect that, I feel is important. Okay. I do. I do agree that if you listen to this on the cast recording, you come across to the song and you go, Oh, well, this is completely out of left field. But with this book, if you were to have just, it's not really a dirge, but if you were to have just serious song after serious song, after serious song, after serious song, when the book is trying to veer it closer towards comedy, I, I don't know. I feel like it, it's, it's nice to supplement it with some levity. I think my issue is placement. If it happened earlier yeah, in I'll Act give you that. 2, totally. I'd probably like it. But as it sits right now, you have this nice comedy song, and then the next scene, there's a fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And the son, his daughter is dead. And it yeah. just makes the fire too random. And yeah. I buy the I moment for each of those characters, but it coming there and then having the fire, when you go back to look at the entire show, you're like, that's not where that moment goes. That can't be where that song goes. Because it makes both the fire look ridiculous and it makes the song itself look ridiculous. Yeah. I see exactly what you mean. And I do agree that it's, it's even just aside from what happens in the story, if you're thinking about it structurally, it is rather late to have the one type of that song be, you know? It's a rather late point in well, the show structurally sing, to have it in, like, the last third quarter, pretty much. They sing in the Yiddish theater, and that's a comedic song. Oh, I, yeah, that's more, of a, that's more of a scene for me than a song. Yeah. Um, it, it's like a scene with music. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the, no, the music it's the sort of music. happens. Yeah. I didn't think it's like a whole number, you know? Mm -hmm. There are songs that don't work as well as the rest of the score. 
but overall the structures being used are so complex overall it's such an epic sweep and the orchestrations here by the way brilliant orchestrations brilliant orchestrations yeah wow fuck's sake it's... this really is up there with like the most brilliant and the most bombastic of those 80s musicals say what you will about the 80s musicals fucking incredible orchestrations all around pretty much but this score is sophisticated and Uh i think we look at the tony awards that year why didn't this win well the show closed when we did get a cast album that was released in 1991 and one thing they did before they closed the show is they made sure that the theater on film and tape archive at lincoln center got in to record the show and their hopes were that the tony nominators would go to the library and watch the show before casting their votes i don't think that happened yeah so you see rags there's no cast album you didn't see the show you have no idea what the score is how are you gonna vote for that yeah um i think that's all i have to say about the score um, let's start talking about Stephen Schwartz's lyrics. You know, on that Tony note, Stephen Schwartz has terrible luck when it comes to the Tony <laughs> Awards. I think he oh, God, finally received a honorary Tony Award in, like, 2017, but he's never won a competitive Tony Award. And you look at what his best work is. His best work is Rags. Arguably, his next best score is The Baker's Wife. That never opened on Broadway. Yeah. And then I'd say his next best score is Children of Eden, which ran in London, was not a success, and they reworked it, and it opened at Paper Mill Playhouse, and then also never opened on Broadway. All of his best work are shows that were not successful and could not be nominated for Tony Awards or had circumstances where you wouldn't vote for them. It's fucking insane. And it's, it's especially considering the fact that, you know, something like Hunchback will never end up coming to Broadway. And honestly, you know, D- Disney and Broadway, and, yeah, but honestly, I, I think Stephen Schwartz might honestly stand his best chance if Hunchback were to ever miraculously end up on Broadway somehow figuring out this equity chorus. Well, no. The whole Hunchback thing. The James Lapine book, the James Lapine production that ran in Germany, that is what the Hunchback musical is to me. That's what I like. I don't like the revision of the Hunchback musical, but I do think it is Alan Menken's strongest score. Again, he's getting screwed over with Hunchback of Notre Dame because they wrote this great musical that ran in Germany, and they literally built the theater for the Hunchback of Notre Dame musical, Der Glockner von Notre Dame, as it was Starring called. Starring Drew Sarich. Uh, they built it on the site of where the Berlin Wall stood. <laughs> and so they created this fantastic production, really high-tech production, and they couldn't transfer it to Broadway because no Broadway theater could house the production. They sat around for years trying to figure out how to get the German hunchback to Broadway. Just couldn't work it out. Yeah. Now, Stephen Schwartz's work in Rags. Yeah. I think his work is fine. It's good. His lyrics match 
Charles Strauss's score well. Charles Strauss has said, if Rags is my best score, it's because of Stephen Schwartz. And I think he said that because he started writing with Hal David, and he wasn't getting the same juice, you know? You get in the room with different people, different creative juices bounce off of each other. I think the alchemy of Charles Strauss and Stephen Schwartz working together is fantastic. And while I wouldn't point to Rags and go, that's the most glittering set of lyrics I've heard in my life, they're not a letdown. And they let Charles Strauss kind of pull his weight and flex his muscles. It, it, I think that is really the best thing to say about it, I suppose, is that there is no disconnect between the lyrics and the score. Because, you know, you have a lyric writer like Stephen Schwartz, someone who has such a distinct and heavy personal style, uh... Someone who, it it's it's great if if you put a Broadway playlist on shuffle and you go, what the fuck are these lyrics? That's Stephen Schwartz. Um, <laughs> That's but not always a bad thing. No, I don't mean that as a bad thing. I didn't. I, did. I didn't. It's not. It's not. A, it's not a what the fuck are these lyrics? It's what the fuck are these lyrics? That's what it is. I was sitting there earlier today thinking. Stephen Sondheim's Look I Made a Hat books. Those are great <laughs> as just a manual yeah. on writing lyrics, but who sure. really needs them is Stephen Schwartz uh-huh. to just explain I needed him. himself. Yeah, and explain just, what the fuck he meant. Well, not what the fuck he meant, but just explain why you went with this image. Why is this what it is? And also just a... <laughs> Write an entire chapter like Sondheim did with Roadshow. Write an endless chapter on rags and all the revisions you've made to rags over the years and why you made those revisions. That is a really educational book that I wish existed. My God, I I couldn't name the amount of money I would throw down for that. Well, because also Baker's wife had how many revisions? Half of his shows have been revised to death. Talk about those revisions. That's how the next generation can learn about musical theater. Talk about the revisions you made and not... I do have the... Uh, it's sitting right here. Uh, Stephen Schwartz, Defying Gravity by Carol de Guir. Guir. Bless you. Um, <laughs> I've read it. It's great. It's most instructional when it comes to the Wicked section. But get into the lyric writing and give us some details. Because I feel like his footnotes would also... Sondheim, where those Sondheim books were great was when he was talking about other composers or he was just talking about the form of lyric writing. He didn't give many footnotes. Stephen Schwartz, I feel like, I need one page of lyrics, one page of footnotes. Give me endless footnotes about every single one of these lyrics because that's really what I'm in here for. Yeah, I get that. I, I I think it's a strong set of lyrics. I think they're very, very... There are moments of the show that are made very powerful through its use of lyrics. I think it matches... Uh, it, it rides a very good wave of passion and uh, beautiful earnestness while also giving you some really, you know, punch-you-in-the-gut evocative shit. Mm-hmm. Um, without ever making it feel like you know you're watching a uh, a a bleary drama, it, it it has a life to it and has an energy, and I appreciate that about it. I, I do think it's a very strong set of lyrics. I think I'm not talking about it in as glowing terms because this best 
set of lyrics that season were Howard Ashman's for Smile. And if you're not right. going with Rags as the best score, I think your second place, far and away your second place, is Smile. That's one I gotta watch. Oh, we'll, we'll talk. It's... <laughs> I love the score to Smile. Um, again, the two flop shows, that's probably what I would have voted everything for. <laughs> um... <laughs> But no, it's a very strong set of lyrics. Does well to set up Charles Strauss's score. Gets some very complex ideas stated in simple terms. Which, that's hard. Yeah. I enjoyed them. Greatly. It's just such a good score all around. Okay, how about we spend a little bit of time talking about the book then? Oi. That's, that's a great indicator. You go first. There's certainly some good writing in the book. Uh-huh. I think I'll just say it before I talk about the book. Any real summation of America has to be messy. Sure. I had a friend that moved to Arizona and they recently drove back to Ohio for the summer for a couple of weeks. And he was like, I never realized we're about five different countries. You go through these endless sections of just nothingness. The middle of the country, some of these places, the socioeconomic differences, how vast the space is. It it just feels like multiple countries. Now, you're not dealing with a vast amount of space physically in rags. But all of the issues that they bring up and the real dealing of the immigrant experience... Because they do actually deal with the immigrant experience here. Any attempt to make a work of art out of that is going to be messy. Because there are too many issues that can't be explained easily. And the issues themselves are not neat. And are not easy to explain. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Okay, there was a fire in a factory. Well, why couldn't these people get out? Well, then you have to explain this, and then you have to explain this, and you have to explain this about the culture, and you have to explain this about the culture. It's just talking about that as a concept and putting that into art. It's definitely an important part of the immigrant experience. A lot of people were working in factories just like that. It is something that needs to come up. It's something that needs to be dealt with. And it's not easy to summarize. You look at the... You look at what I think is the best summation of America. Angels in America. Oh, sure. Specifically part two, Perestroika. Even the people that love it say that it's a bit of a mess. And I love that about it. Because there are just no clean ways to deal with these issues. Fair enough. Interesting. The country of America is a mess. It defies explanation. It defies easy summary. So you get these issues into any work of art, they are going to be a mess. And so then, rather than focusing on what is a mess, I think you have to focus on does anything work? And are you able to have a good time? 
and not a good time, but are you able to go away from the theater feeling like you spent your money's worth? I guess is the phrase I'd use. And I believe Ken Mandelbaum wrote something in Not Since Carrie along the lines of rags is a rare flop that you can find a million issues with and you'll still walk away at the end of the night having a good time. Sure. And I think that's true here. Yeah. I, 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 I do think ha- uh, Rags's deal is that it's incredibly fantastic window dressing uh, covering a structurally unsound piece of material, right? It's like the music and lyrics is really beautifully and elegantly covering up this flimsy sort of falling apart structurally book you know mm-hmm. it it has good moments as you mentioned there are moments of the book that i think really shine you know there's the entire lonnie price monologue um that gets a standing ovation as much for lonnie price as it does for the monologue i'm sure but it there are there are moments of the book that are really evocative and that do really shine through um it, it just suffers from, you know, that messiness and that clunkiness. And it overall just structurally as a piece suffers because of it, which is really interesting because I, I, I do agree with you that the book does represent a lot really well. And, and what it does represent well, it represents incredibly well. It, it, it's just that there are parts of the show that are also sacrificed as a result. You know, it's not a clean sweep, I suppose. The show is a sprawling mess. And how we deal with immigrants in America has always been a sprawling mess. The topic of the show demands messiness. Is, is rags what we deserve? Rags is what we deserve. We deserve the indictment of America. We'll talk about the revisions and they kind of take that away. I I first want to say... uh, We'll get to the revisions now because my first point here, what I was really happy with watching Rags is I wasn't getting a story of a happy, can-do, peppy immigrant who was going to go out against the odds and make it. Uh Uh-huh. Because... After the last two years or so, after the last, well, four and one of Joe Biden, after the past five years, I don't want to see any stories about how America works. Sure. It it doesn't. We've been through COVID-19 and we can't even begin a discussion about universal health care. I'm sorry. We are a third world cesspool. With lovely window dressing. With lovely window dressing, but we are a third world cesspool built on a bunch of marketing schemes. And that is the one thing we have done successfully. We have marketed ourselves to others. And that is why the immigrants arrived. And there is even a line in the show that Nathan has that I don't have a trade. I never had a job. I can make people like me. In America, that is a trade. Yeah. And everyone laughs, and I just sat here groaning like that is the most heartbreaking line because I have never heard something more real. Oh, boy. That's on the <laughs> fucking money, isn't it? 
Uh, they're laughing in the 80s, but I'm just sitting here thinking, and look who we elected. And <laughs> look at where that ends up. I mean, the show in some ways is prescient uh-huh. about how things are going to be. Um, but I was happy to see they weren't going to dress up the immigrants as if they were happy. Yeah. They were going to deal with it was a hard life for these people and they made it through but not always intact and not always happily. And so then when they go to revise the choice they made was that Rebecca is the central character and there are too many loose threads. You need to cut some of those loose threads, focus more on Rebecca, and they say that Rebecca isn't an active character in the original version, which is absolutely correct. She's more reactive than she is active. Uh-huh. And they fix this by making Rebecca active, which makes a more sound-constructed musical. It also makes a musical I'm less interested in. I was less yeah. interested watching the revision than I was watching the original production. And part of what they did is by making Rebecca active and by making her a go-getter, by making her an exceptional immigrant who really has, she designs dresses and she has a great design eye, we were told in this revision, by making her exceptional, you don't get the full picture of the immigrants and you're not what you're watching a story about one person who can be exceptional and has her knocks but at the end of the day they move children to of the wind to an 11 o'clock number so she's going to pick herself up she's going to sing a power ballad and the show's going to end and so rather than an indictment of america which i like about rags and which i think is what rags should be they've turned it into the very piece of America that propagates the issues we've had. That's heavy. Holy hell. The like, revisions yes. of rags is what's wrong with America. No, no. The revisions of rags are not what's wrong with America. The revisions of rags make a more structurally sound musical. They also go completely against what I think the original musical was about. They also make the show a lot more boring. And I like rags to be a mess. Let it be a mess. And when I say revisions, there have been multiple rounds of revisions. I'm talking mostly about the revisions that happened in 2017 at good speed and then continued when they went to London. And I believe that was like 2020. Early 2020. Yeah, there was an early... Uh, there was a production earlier uh, last year, yeah. Yeah, they released a cast album and that's now what's getting licensed. And Steven Schwartz oh, yeah. has talked about how he had denied pretty much any production of Rags close to New York. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. He became the curmudgeon because he wasn't happy with the show and he did, thought it didn't take its final form. And I think he believes this is Rags' final form. And I think that's a shame. Gosh. you. Yeah, I guess it's like that, that close of a blow you almost don't want to, like, you know, you just don't want to take that risk again. I think there is a better version of what played on Broadway, but I don't think they've mm -hmm. overall improved what was on Broadway. But 
let's talk about some of the issues the book has. I mean, we've mentioned sure. Rebecca is reactive more than she's active. It's uh-huh. very talky at the beginning. That's true, yeah. And I don't know if that necessarily sets up the best tone. Because you start, there's a bit of music, I believe... Greenhorns happens before a very long book scene, right? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. You start the show with this sort of like uh, immigration music and you see the Statue of Liberty and then Greenhorns. And then you get about a ten minute book scene. Right. At, at least. And, and then you thinking... get the number where it's her singing to her son. Which is, yeah, that's about ten minutes between. And... I think it's just a little too long for that book scene, especially that early in the show. I agree with you there. It 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 it, it kind of falls hard in the in that in between. The other issue I have is they bring in Nathan way too late. Yeah. Yeah. And the I know that in the in Mary those revisions, Kurt. he doesn't come in till the second act. No, you're talking about the revision that they did in the mid-90s. Well, that's the revision that I read along with as I was watching this. I saw that, and I was like, okay, so he's just not going to come on all of this time? Okay. In the 2017 revision, which I think they are thinking is the final show, Nathan does not exist. Oh! Oh! He, he was killed by the Cossacks. So then, how do you have the entire political subplot? You don't. Okay, what do you put in its place? Nothing. Okay. So then what's the show called? So, why do you the revision... Call it, why do you call it rags if you're not going to do rags? The revision, Nathan doesn't exist... Um, she meets Bella on the boat, and Bella accepts her. Uh, Bella and Avram are living with Avram's brother and wife, and they run a little home sweatshop. Not a sweatshop, but it's just the people (laughs) in the house, and they're making dresses. Okay. That they then sell to one of the local people that's historically accurate and they talked about they went to some museums and that's where they got the idea and rebecca has a great design passion it's not a passion but she has an ability to create some great designs and one day she slips one of the garments into the rest of rest of the dresses and the owner of the shop comes and he says i really like this who did this oh you you are a, an exceptional immigrant. You should come design for me. And she's taking the... There's a whole... Greenhorns. You hear greenhorns about seven or eight times, which is too much to hear greenhorns. <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ. But because they're also honing in on the whole Take Back America, which happened at the time. And also the Trumpism. They're leaning into the Trumpist leanings that existed and have reappeared. Um, she goes with Bella to take a dress to the one of the clients and the dress gets ripped up and Rebecca then sings Rags. 
because <sighs> the literal dress she made is now in rags. Um, this doesn't work, by the way. I understand why you want the title song to be the main character. It doesn't work because rags doesn't sound like anything else that Rebecca sings in that score. Yeah, it doesn't. It's uh, it's it it it's non-soprano. Well, she's not a soprano anymore. That's the other thing. Oh, she's come not a soprano. On. She's not a soprano. She's more in alphabet territory. Are you serious? Uh, she's she has some soprano notes, but it's notes. Oh, thank God, notes. It, it's a belt roll now. That's. And can we have nothing? Can we not have one left? But you know, do what you want to carousel. At least keep this intact. Oh, shut up! I I, I could Best give a rat's ass. You know this. <sighs> so anyway, it, it doesn't work because <laughs> she's given all of these melodies throughout the show, and she's given long lines. And rags is more about getting to that final high belted section, and it's ba ba da 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 ba. It's more rhythmic than anything else she sings. So then she starts singing rags. It doesn't make sense for the character musically for anything else that you've heard in the show. Bella eventually gets a job in the factory, which they don't want her to have the job in the factory. She dies. Rebecca sings "Children of the Wind." as an 11 o'clock number, which again boosts that whole exceptional immigrant going out and making it. Um, which I normally would like in a musical. And normally that is good musical theater structure. But this is an indictment of America. And I don't think this is just a normal musical. God. You know? Yeah. And that's your show. The cast reprises Children of the Wind, and Bella walks on in white, and now she's a ghost that they all look at and sing to. Oh, great. Oh, and there's also, when they rip up the dress, and when they're, like, attacking Rebecca with the dress near the end of Act 1, uh, Bella's with her, and in the staging I saw, they bent Bella over, and it looked like they were about to rape her. Look. And ethnically influenced rape was the last thing that we needed to add to rags. Why? That's unnecessarily torture porn. That's unnecessary. It's repugnant. They were trying to get rid of so many threads, but also, you can't just add in a rape. We didn't need a rape in rags. And it isn't successful. I don't think he even lifts the shirt. But it looks like he's about to rape her. It's a cheap device... And I I don't know. Frankly, I just think it's uh, it's a dramatic device in theater that I think should be used a lot less, especially for yeah, something as frivolous as "Hey, less. bad thing happens to person." So it's that unnecessary. now your title character can sing the title number that doesn't sound like anything else that the character sings. Huh. Like, the revisions create just as many problems as they ever attempted to solve. And I think the revised the revised version, the actors are also the instrumentalists, and I think it's more producible. But honestly, come up with a good version of the Broadway show, come up with a revised version, and let companies decide what they want to produce. Uh-huh. You know, that's my thinking, at least. And it's not that the revised version is bad. 
I just think it's antithetical to what I liked about the show. Right. But other issues with the book. The character of Bella isn't really sketched in. A lot of the characters are symbols rather than human beings. Nathan comes in too late. Personally, how I fix that, I don't specifically know how, but I think after Greenhorns, maybe we get a couple scenes throughout Act 1 of Larry Kurt kind of working his way up in Yankee Boy, and we don't necessarily realize that's Rebecca's husband, but they finally see each other, and this person you've been seeing randomly throughout the act, oh, that's her husband, she finally found him, he's a success. And I think that's a better way to kind of get the character in the show earlier, so you're getting him throughout. Um, not since Carrie said the audience was not happy when Larry Kurt showed up, even though he was Larry Kurt. Really? They didn't... Yeah. They did not want this sleazy guy affecting Teresa Stratus' life that late in the show. He, he did get entrance applause in this performance. It's Larry Kurt. Yeah. Of course he's going to get entrance applause. That's the original Tony from West Side Story. Most yeah, of them probably that's... saw him as Bobby and company. Exactly. That's a th really a theatrical legend. Legend, yeah. Of course he's going to get entrance applause, but overall, by intermission, they were all saying, wait a minute, that's her husband? That We don't like that guy. We don't like the character. And then and, and the, the rest suffers for it. Also... Saul uh, kind of sings Wanting, and there we go. I'm Terrence Mann. I'll be in my dressing room smoking a joint. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of completely fades out. Like, Larry Kurt shows up. They switch places, you know? Larry yeah. Kurt isn't in the show. Terrence Mann's in the show. Okay, now Larry Kurt showed up. <laughs> they Thank tag you, Terrence out. Mann. You can go home. Yeah. You think you think they uh, you think they double cast the role ever? <laughs> no, you couldn't. <laughs> Because they do overlap a little bit, but not very much. You put him um, in a little bit of a ponytail, I'm sure it's fine. Which character gets the ponytail? I know who my answer is. Saul. No, not Saul. Sal. Sal gets the ponytail. I think that's the reason they changed it. Because they wanted to double cast the guy, and they went, okay, well, we got to do this ponytail change. Uh, let's make him Italian. That, that, that'll check out. You'd never see a Jewish guy in a ponytail. I don't, I don't know why they changed it to Italian. It, Neither I, do I, but I think it's fucking hilarious. Let it be about Jews. I let am, I am exhausted. Let the Jewish show be about Jews. I am exhausted uh, with the mainstream media trying to push this Italian agenda. I'm fucking repulsed by it. <laughs> Calm the fuck down. I am both Italian and Jewish. Thank you very much. <laughs> I oh could God, be what? Saul Sal. Saul Sal. That's me. Wanting. Salsa. S You're salsa. Salsa. <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? There are issues with the book. Uh, That's for sure. Not all the characters work. Uh, some of the songs are random. I mentioned the the placing of three sunny rooms and the fire makes both seem less strong. And there are little things that creep up here and there along the same lines. I do think the book does some great stuff, though. I do think, unfortunately, it's just not something that's remediable. 
It is no, what I it don't is. Think, I don't think the show is remediable, and I think I love the show probably because of a lot of the flaws, which I have previously said. I think we actually love the works of art we love because they are flawed in a way that we like to see things flawed. Interesting. We we take rags for what it is. So overall, a uh, perfect book. Well, no, no, no. We didn't talk about anything that works. Um, it's certainly funny. Yeah. The Jewish Hamlet scene. Yeah, fucking. I, 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 I sent this to Dan as I was watching it. I think it's honestly the best summation of Hamlet I've ever seen. That like, it really didn't miss anything. It's not so great to live. It's not so great to die. Uh, don't be sad. Next year in Jerusalem. <laughs> Oi, this is making me sick to think about. And then you hear a guy in the audience. So don't think about it. <laughs> it's perfect. It's fucking perfect. <laughs> oh. To be or not to be. A terrible question. <laughs> in other words, to live or to die. Both bad. Just die. I wish people voice. would do that at monologues, <laughs> at monologue competitions instead. <laughs> Living we know about, suffering without end, but dying is better. <laughs> uh, it's oh. just a hysterical scene. Uh-huh. And you, you mentioned Lonnie Price's monologue. That's certainly well written. There yeah. are well written lines for the characters. Right. Like, all of the actual writing, all of the words that they have the characters saying, that's good. That works. The lines are not poorly written. Like, the grade of execution is high. It's just what the book doesn't do that is the problem. Or how the book places some of the numbers. Or where characters come into the book. Once they're on stage does a good job with them but it's what doesn't happen that is the issue more than what does would you agree yeah i agree it's it's missing things is what it is uh-huh and i don't and it's think not there like, is it's not a like, way it's not for like you the, to cover it's not like the book things. feels empty it's that some of the things they put in should have been replaced with things that would have filled in the missing blanks but also, I don't know how you do that. I don't know mm. what goes. It is a little bit disappointing. But overall, I think the writing for Rags is pretty brilliant. I think there are more moments of brilliance than I have issues with the show. Yeah. I think it's a solid musical. I think it's not. It's just not what people expect from a musical. Yeah. Well, we have what we have. Okay, so that's about it for the material of Rags. Um, what do you say we redirect to this production? Uh, sure, we can. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about beforehand? Uh, not really. I'm just not jumping to talk about the production. And that's because it's a bit of a hodgepodge. Yeah. That's true. There like, I don't are... think... Th- I don't think the material is where this show kind of fails. I think it's just Mm. not a strong production. But I don't see how it could be a strong production when you've went through three directors by the time the show opens. 
Yeah, you you get uh, dissonance anyway. Hodgepodge is a good word. Um, there are moments where the design seems to be minimalist and times where it is trying to go all out. And you have moments where you have the street fair and it's pretty much just like one or two carts on the stage. And then you have the entire back wall, a physical cutout of the Statue of Liberty. Statue of Liberty. And it's like, what are we going for here? And the designers were hired by Joan Milliken Silver. Mm-hmm. And Joan Milliken Silver had the des- she had kind of approved designs before she had been fired. So then you're trapped in these designs that aren't necessarily what you want to use, but uh-huh. they're already being built. I-, I just thought the production didn't have a sure hand. And I don't know how there could be a sure hand. This is also, you read the reviews for Rags, every single one of the reviews say, well, it's kind of directed by Gene Sachs, but he was brought in last minute, and he's still... Every single one of them mentions the out-of-town trauma that happened. And that's not... uh, It's Yeah, they would have to comment on it, but it's also not good at helping sell the show. Yeah, it's... Messy, that's for sure. It's something like the Penny a Tune number goes through about five different visual sequences, five different settings or whatnot. And that's fine, but it doesn't build visually. And, you know, we talked about in the Dreamgirls episode, Step Into the Bad Side, how that number visually built and then exploded in your eye. And the Penny Attune number really needed the number to explode in the eye by the end. And it just didn't. And it wasn't necessarily that was there was anything wrong. And I was thinking, do you really need a director-choreographer? But then they also did bring in Ron Fields. And Ron uh-huh. Fields choreographed the original production of Cabaret. And was a terrific choreographer in his own right, and I believe also went on to direct and choreograph shows, become a director-choreographer of his own right. And I just don't know if he didn't have time to fix that number. Because we also watched a preview. So we don't right. know how many changes well, were made. The odds, the, the odds of not getting one are, are significantly rarer, frankly. Right. Right. Uh, we don't know how much was changed from the performance we saw to the sure. closing night. But there were moments that had great Ron Field choreography. He got Teresa Stratus to dance and gave Teresa Stratus a fantastic dance number that made her look in control let her lead the number and made her look like she really could dance. And let me tell you, getting an opera star to dance? Mind-blowing and genius work there. So, I just don't know if Penny Attune, they didn't have time to fix it, or it just, there wasn't someone in the rehearsal room saying, okay, we need these lines of dialogue shorter because we're losing a pace. Or we need a couple extra bars of music here. Whatever happened, there wasn't a sure hand to help Mm -hmm. moments like that and numbers like that 
build that's totally to what, what it was be. that's totally what it was lacking it was a, a sure hand it did feel mm. very i guess frivolous isn't the right word but it felt unfocused well it felt like people kept passing the buck which is what happened yeah it, it felt like a directing by marathon mm. well and gene Sachs said pretty much by the time he came in he saw his job as clarifying what was confusing sure so if that was his goal he succeeded but it doesn't he never had the ability or the time to create a specific production and create a specific take on the show or really fix the direction that existed Mm -hmm. he's not fixing he's clarifying by his own admission. This feels like a reorganization job. Mm-hmm. And that's to its detriment, but c'est la vie. I thought also the fire sequence, that could have been better portrayed. Yeah, it, 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 it felt very static, like very. Like the staging of the fire. And yeah. then in other productions, it's completely off stage, apparently. Uh, the fire I thought needed to be more visual I don't know if that's a projection I don't know what that is but they did try to represent the fire didn't really work Uh, it's such an arresting opening image when that Statue of Liberty does come out really breathtaking but then there's never any visual moment that follows that up so it just seems out of place what else do you have to say about the production? I don't know. Not too much. I, I was thought there it was a fine production. Out? It just felt... That's what I was going to say. It didn't feel like a very standout production. I don't know. If I think of moments, I guess I'm thinking of... You know, I, I enjoyed that tr- that transition in the title song, Rags. I was literally where... about to bring up the title song. That felt like the show living up to its full potential. I enjoyed that sequence. I enjoyed that sequence where you have the transition into what was like the 14th Street section of town. That was a very good staging moment and then great choreography to supplement it. Well, and visually they all come in in white. And you realize no one's really been dressed in white this entire show. And it's another way to say you aren't a wasp. And so visually it underlines what is in the writing. And it underlines yeah. the emotion of the moment. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, you you know me. You've said it yourself on this podcast. I'm a production hoe. I just don't have much to write home about here. I don't have anything that I hated. I don't have anything that I really loved. It just sort of, you know, happened. There wasn't, like, I didn't watch this and go, you know, I'll fuck that production. But uh, it didn't give me anything either. The choreography that you could tell they worked on. Yeah, that was that is something I, I I did I was able to note. You mentioned uh, the uh, sequence. Um, what did you say it was? It was it was the the political speech segment. What's the name of the song where she broke I, into? I, the I dance? forget the name of the song, but the Teresa Stratus dance sequence. Mm-hmm. That dance sequence was really fantastic, and especially the way that it came up with the clapping. Uh, just like that transition into it was really fantastic, and I so thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, well, that for me was that. probably my favorite moment of the production. Well, and, and not that, but just the transition in rags. That's also choreographed, and there's also dancing in that. 
you could tell that was worked on and how they brought in the people tastefully and how they came in and surrounded her it's she didn't just walk into them they kind great of great transitional it was, choreography it, it was cinematic also the yankee boy number that they did for larry kurt i thought was really fantastic mm. let larry kurt really show himself off which he deserves you know what mu- Broadway musical Larry Kurt followed up Rags with? Was it Lacage? Uh, he did a tour of Lacage, but when he came back to Broadway, he was back at the Mark Hellinger, which is where Rags was. Oh. And he oh, was understudying. Oh, this was the Mark Hellinger. Yes, and he was understudying oh, Peter Allen in Legs Diamond. Oh. He was in. So. So Larry Kurt was in the shows that killed the Mark Hellinger. Larry Kurt killed the Mark Hellinger, yes. <laughs> oh, God. If you love me, show me your knockers. And if you hate me, put your knockers away. Yeah, Peter Allen, I really <laughs> believe that from you. Harvey Firestein said oh. he just, nothing was working, Doesn't nothing that- was working. Didn't matter how he rewrote this show. And Peter Allen was understudying... No, no, no. Larry Kurt was understudying Peter Allen. And Harvey Firestein went in for Larry Kurt's uh, understudy rehearsal to see the show running. Because it's Larry Kurt. Of course you're going to go. You want to see Larry Kurt. You're a th- fan of the theater. If it's Larry Kurt, you're going to show up. He said... He went, he sat down, Larry Kurt did the part, and he just left despondent because he said, It's fixed. I don't need to fix it. The show works. It's Peter Allen that's fucking everything up. I can't, I have to tell you, I've never heard a more heterosexual lyric in my life. Um, <laughs> the... And Peter Allen wrote that lyric. <laughs> Peter Allen, my first uh, okay. husband, my best husband. Liza's first husband, who ended up, um, who ended up, uh, more than he who ended up Liza. What? You're telling me that lyric was produced by someone who's not who's heterosexual? <laughs> yeah. But that's the lyric of someone with so much expertise. So, that's us, that's us talking about, uh, there's the, the, the show and the material and the who's it's and the what's it's. Let's uh, let's talk about the bodies on the stage, why don't we? Sure. A bunch of nobodies that nobody's ever heard of before or since. Or... <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm looking at these names. I don't. Uh, how how do you, how do you pronounce this? Is that L- Dick Latissa? I don't I don't know what is this. Okay, well we should mention Dick Latessa ended up doing hairspray, and he was a veteran character actor. He was in the original cast of Follies. Dick, oh, so this is the second time we're covering this the original is, cast of this Follies. This is an original cast member of Follies. We should also mention, also in the show, Marsha Lewis, who went on to originate Matron Mama Morton in that Encore's revival of Chicago. Oh. Mm-hmm. You thought we saw Marsha Lewis in that Bye Bye Birdie episode, but I said that's not Marsha Lewis. Marsha Lewis replaced uh, Marilyn Cooper in that tour of Bye Bye Birdie. And the listing mm. was wrong. Um, what a stack cast. My god, it's a, it's a cast that won't quit. Every person. Um, let's start, um, you know, let's, 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 let's start with Lonnie Price's Ben. Uh, what did you think of his, of his performance here? 
first Broadway musical he did after Merrily We Roll Along, which I believe ran six performances. Not heading in the right direction here for him at this point in his life. No wonder he became a director. Poor guy. He did some plays that ran. He did some plays in between that ran. That's good. But musicals... Not his, uh, not his uh, area of success. Not performance. Not performance wise. wise. Not performance yeah. wise. Why don't you talk about the performance? <laughs> Lonnie Price has a great energy to him. He has, I don't know. I feel like he has a stage presence that is beyond him and beyond his years and beyond his training, and. It's one of those wonderful things where you just look at it and you go, yeah, I guess that's just someone who's born with it. Um, you know what I'm realizing right now? This is a non sequitur. Lonnie Price jumped to direction, and in that jumping, we completely skipped over getting Lonnie Price as Buddy and Follies, and I'm upset about that now. Oh, man. You say, oh, man, oh, man. as if you've ever seen Follies. No, but I know Buddy. I like Lonnie Price. He's a very unique presence on stage. You hear that voice, you know immediately that's Lonnie Price. Uh Uh-huh. And I think he does well here. Yeah. He, um... We mentioned it earlier. He gets a standing ovation for... Not standing ovation. Uh, We mentioned it earlier. Uh, The audience applauds after his monologue. Uh because he really is someone that gives like every ounce of his energy on the stage and really is someone who you can tell just so enjoys putting that out there and so enjoys being a part of it, you know? And you, you like seeing that in a performer. You like, um, you, you like rooting for the actor as much as you root for the character, you know? You know, in a cast that is filled with Broadway stalwarts, Lonnie Price feels like he has an energy that is... Yes. Broadway kid. You know? And it's uh, it's also, to me, the only energy that really felt like it was matching David, um, the little kid. Uh, it really did feel like the, the one that worked with it and worked, uh, you know, hand in hand together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both really brilliantly complemented each other because they both had that vibrancy to them you know mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily get from as you call them the stalwarts uh as wonderfully kept and as wonderful at performing as those actors might be um it's nice to get something that feels so fresh fresh is the the best word i can think to use mm-hmm. a little bright-eyed bushy-tailed is what you're saying sure yeah exactly bright-eyed bushy-tailed and giving you Everything they fucking got. Mm-hmm. And before we move on from Lonnie Price, we should note he made a speech at the end of the Saturday matinee. They closed on a Saturday night. He made a speech at the end of Saturday matinee saying, if you like... Well, I'm zero for two. He said, if you liked <laughs> this show, we're in dangerous... We're in serious danger of closing. And if you like the show... We are going to be marching in 10 minutes from the theater to the TKTS booth and join us mm. in the protest. And they actually had a protest 
they protested wow. the closing of the show. They went to the TKTS <laughs> booth. They actually sold out the closing performance, but the show still closed. But he was wow. he, that's a movement. He was angry that the show was closing, and rightly so. It should have. I don't know if it ever would have seen a profit, but four performances seems light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, who would you like to talk about next? You get to pick the next person. We'll go back and forth. I get to pick the next person? I'm uh, very gracious like that. Let's talk about Judy Kuhn as Bella. The name that we know so well on this podcast. The name that we know so well and the name that one of the co-hosts keeps mixing up with Judy K. You'll get it eventually. <laughs> Excuse me, I was not the person <laughs> that made the problem. What did you think of Judy Kuhn as Bella? Oh, she was incredible. With the material she had, she she performed it excellently. Um, had a real fire and a real certainty to her characterization. She always felt like she was someone who, you know... She, she felt like she was carrying that energy of someone who is like... In, in, in that sort of back leg stance where, you know, nothing's going to knock you down. You're, like, built up in order to not be knocked over by any force. That kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't in necessarily like a, you know, train going at the speed of light level force. But it's just like that sturdy, nothing can knock me down kind of thing. Um, and, of course, her character is pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Um, and we eventually get to her performance of the title song, but it's someone with so much, you know, self-worth and someone with so much assuredness that leads to a very powerful performance. Um, and then aside from the characterization, it's Judy Kuhn. Mm-hmm. Whatever notes you give her to sing, she'll be able to do it with a plum. Her singing in this sounds fantastic. Uh, her characterization is fantastic. And I thought she was a really great force on the stage. Of the characters that aren't really extensively drawn, I think she's given the least. And yet she brings yeah. such humanity to that character. And she fills out that character so nicely. And then, yeah, that title song is absolute fire coming out of her. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a thrill to watch. We talked briefly in Dance of the Vampires about flops. You know, the good ones have moments of brilliance. She definitely brings... This flop has many moments of brilliance, but she brings that level of absolute brilliance to this stage very nicely. Uh-huh. Um, all right, so now let's jump to Larry Kurt, then, mm-hmm. playing uh, Nathan Hershkowitz, depending on who you ask. And Larry Kurt, of course, was the original Tony in West Side Story. I don't know if I've mm-hmm. told this story on the podcast. Uh, Jerry Robbins famously was not happy with Larry Kurt and West Side Story during Maria. So at one of the rehearsals... While Larry Kurt is singing Maria, Jerry Robbins just decides to start screaming at him, Faggot! Faggot! (laughs) 
Oh my god! Just so angry, and Jesus. he doesn't have the words to verbalize, so he just starts screaming at Larry Kurt, faggot. I, wow. I guess telling him that he wasn't passing enough, I don't know exactly what direction that was, but yeah. Yeah, Larry Kurt started crying, and Jerry Robbins made him continue singing the song and continued berating him and continued calling him a fag throughout the rehearsal. Isn't that lovely? So, so you liked Larry Kurt then, is what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm glad we're covering Larry Kurt, because... Is this is this this is gonna be one of our only chances to, to do so, so isn't it? Exactly, it's gonna be one of our only chances. Larry Kurt was in a lot of shows before video bootlegs were the norm, uh-huh. and right. then he died too young of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. So this is probably one of the only video bootlegs that exists of Larry Kurt, to be honest. Because he never went on for Legs Diamond. I can't think. I do believe there is a video of him in Lacage, but we've already covered Lacage. And he's not the most likable character here, but God, that voice is there, and that voice is just terrific. Yeah. And then in the second act, he has the Yankee Boy number, and he gets to dance, and he shows you what a force he was, gives you an inkling of what a force this man was on stage, what a consummate song and dance man he was, what a likable personality he could be in the right character. (laughs) He certainly acts well. And I thought that Uptown song was not very long, was not much, but God did he sell the exact message that the song needed. There's an epicness to him as a performer that's evident here. Yeah. And we don't have many epic performers anymore. I mean, we have performers that are very equipped, can do a million different things, but just standing on stage, you know, the kind of transference of energy that really makes you sit back and go, he's good. That doesn't exist so much anymore. And Larry Kurt here, God, he's good. You know, it's a role that takes a while to get there, as we mentioned. And as a result... Well, not for Larry Kurt to up... get there, but for the character to show up at all. That's No, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Like, uh-huh. for, for, the, for Larry Kurt's character to show up in the show, it ends up with a kind of little disconnect where you don't feel as much about the character as probably as either the show wants you to or as the show sort of requires you to. Um, But that being said, he's always very compelling when he's on the stage. And you do start off the show thinking, oh, like, I'm so happy for her. I'm so happy that this reunion has happened. And then as the second act goes on, he starts to show this truer side of himself And playing that transformation and, you know, not getting stuck in just one of those interpretations and going one way or the other with it is really, really effectively done. Uh, He does portray a lot of the nuance there. He doesn't, you know, there's there's the big problem. We talked about in Cabaret as well. Actors who, as soon as they're revealed that they're a villain, uh, they start playing it like a villain. 
which makes no sense if you haven't been playing it like a villain this entire time. And that's one of Larry Kurt's strengths. You start the show and you see that he's someone who does feel very passionately, someone who knows what it is that he needs in life and what it is that he wants in life, and he's very invested in that. And those things end up being contrary to each other, but he still, you know, he still shows that passion for all of those aspects. Well, and I don't think um, Nathan sees himself as a villain at all. No, of course not. Of course not. And no, you know, no real villain really sees themselves as a villain. I don't know. I watch the Joker because I love watching all those comic book movies and Marvel. Ooh, Marvel. Yay, Marvel. We love Marvel. And I think it was very clear from Joaquin Phoenix's performance that the Joker specifically wanted to see himself as a villain because we live in a society that... I... (laughs) I need to stress for the audience, in case this fear arises, I cannot link myself to this person. I have not yet seen Joker. Dan is not doing an impression of me. I need to make sure this is universally Oh, I wasn't doing an impression of you. No, I know that. I know that. I need to make sure they know that. Okay. 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 I just love all of the Marvel movies. So, so Larry Curtis, the Joker, I really enjoy it. What a shitty society. Like, completely <laughs> absent of it being a quote from the Joker. We do live in a shitty society, because we're stuck with all these fucking Marvel movies. Grow the fuck up, kids. I do like that we've now said we live in a society on the podcast. I think our mission's done. We live in a society that just accepts that we have never-ending sequels to these comic book things. It's awful. It's awful. Yeah, so that's what I have to say about uh, Teresa. What did did you think? What? Oh, you've just been talking for so long, I already started talking about Teresa. That was a great (laughs) joke on my part. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed Larry Kurt's performance. How lovely that we were able to cover Larry Kurt on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I actually am happy about that. And he seems to be at the height of his powers here. Uh Uh-huh. All right, I suppose that just leaves us with our diva herself. Teresa Stratus, who was at the very height of her career when she took this. This was right after she did Lulu at the Met. And... Uh Uh-huh. That was a major... She was the first person to do the complete Lulu. Uh, you, We're going to be covering Lulu on this podcast eventually. Are we? Okay. Yes. Album Berg famously died in the process of writing Lulu, and he had, I believe, a piano score of the third act, but the third act was never performed complete. And someone came along, much like it happened in Turandot after Puccini died. Someone came along and realized the rest of the show. And Teresa Stratus premiered the full Lulu. No one had ever performed the third act before. She performed all three acts of Lulu. She was the quintessential Lulu. It was a huge premiere at the Met. And also, when they went to do the video broadcast of Lulu on PBS, she decided to call out. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit! She decided that she didn't really care that it was going to be put on TV. Eh, I don't feel like showing up today. So, we all have off days on our most crucial performance nights, you know. Uh Uh-huh. 
She was one of the number one opera divas of the day. She sold a lot of records. I need everyone at home because podcasting is famously a visual medium. Uh Uh-huh. I need everyone at home. I'm about to tell a story. Take your finger and stick your finger... Hey, 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 hey. Exactly where your nose meets your forehead. Oh, that okay. crook right there. Stick your finger right there, and I want you to remember that spot. Now, famously in opera, the singers are not miked, typically. Only in very specific newer operas where the composer requires it are opera singers ever miked. So they go for rags and they go out of town. And Teresa Stratus, they say, hey, hey, Teresa, here's your microphone. What are you doing? I'm not using that. I don't need that. So she goes out and she performs and she's unmiked. And then the second performance happens. And everyone walks out on stage and everyone does a double take. What the hell is going on with Teresa Stratus? Teresa Stratus not only put the microphone on, that point in your forehead I had you point to, she pulled <laughs> the mic oh, all the way no. down to where no. the crook of her nose was because in opera, while you don't need a mic, you never perform the next day. You have one performance typically on Monday. At the earliest, you will have a second performance on Wednesday. Never in her life had she had to do two performances in a row like that. So by the second performance, while she did not need a mic, she was going to be using a mic and she was going to pull it down as far as she could possibly pull it down because you know what? Doing two performances in a row for her, that was hard. Fuck. Famous story. Second famous story from The Run of Rags. In the opera world, um, the composer is usually dead (laughs) when you go to perform a show. Shows don't really change. The operas don't really change. Like, Puccini did rewrite large sections of Madame Butterfly, but he did that after the first production happened and wasn't very successful. You're not dealing with changes on a daily basis. And Teresa Stratus is put in a situation where there are (laughs) apparently no two performances or rehearsals of Rags were ever the same because the show was in such constant flux. They're out of Uh town. And Teresa Stratus tells, goes up to the creative team and says, I'm not doing any changes tonight. Don't come find me. I'm not doing any changes. This is after a performance. Just, I'll put him in when I can put him in, but tonight you have to leave me alone. So, okay. At least she made the declaration outright instead of just pulling a topol and going, ah, oh, fuck it. Charles Strauss and Stephen Schwartz rewrite some number. And they go up to her hotel room, and they knock on the door. There's no response. And they knock on the door again. And the door eventually opens, and it's Trace Estratus with a chair hurled above her head that she then throws at them. Queen. Because she was not doing any changes that night. And you know what? For all the diva antics that you hear about Teresa Stratus, I have not heard a single person who was involved with rags say anything negative about Teresa Stratus. 
That sounds reasonable. I think if you go out and say, I'm not going to do this, it's a dick move, and I guess you should know what you're getting into, but you gave the heads up, I don't know why you knock on that door. I don't know what incenses you. I believe it even made Charles Strauss's autobiography, and he was like, to be fair, she did warn us. <laughs> yeah, like... Uh, Trace the, she warned she would spring the bear trap, and then I walk over there and I find my foot stuck in a bear trap. What is this? And Trace Estratus, um, besides being a great vocalist and besides being a great actress, earlier in the '80s, again the '80s were her time where she was. It was unthinkable how big an opera diva she was, how big her star was. Um, in the middle of her career, she just took time off to go volunteer at Mother Teresa's hospital for orphans in India. Huh. She volunteered with Mother Teresa, I believe, twice. She would just take time off of her career uh, to just do humanitarian things. Like, well, that's nice. Teresa Stratus didn't give a fuck what anyone else thought of her. She was going to do what she was going to do. The career's unthinkable. She was a major star. She was going to do what she was going to do, and fuck you if you don't like it. So, do you want to start talking about her in rags? Yeah, what do you think of her in rags? I liked it. What about you? <laughs> you... Look, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised to hear that this is a fish-out-of-water situation for her. Because she just works incredibly on that stage. Like, there isn't anything that she really falls short of. She hits with the acting. She hits with her singing. She hits with her dancing. Mm-hmm. At first, I wasn't sure with such a, you know, clear and legit soprano voice. I was certain that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe she's like a vocalist kind of performance. She's one of those, you know, like a fine actress with an incredible voice and one of those. Um, and then she danced, and I was like, oh, wow, she's pretty capable of this. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was like, okay, cool, maybe it's just like, you know, an all-around musical theater actress who just didn't get much dancing to do. And then, knowing now that she's an opera performer, <laughs> yeah. I am thoroughly impressed. Uh-huh. I'm thoroughly impressed with this performance. I think... It really is a remarkable time on the stage. It is a large role with a lot of facets to cover, and all of them done excellently. And it's exciting to watch that passion and that fierceness build up within her, you know? Mm -hmm. She is a ball of Uh, fire on stage. The talent level there is just unthinkable. Astronomical. Nowhere better evidence than at the end of Act 1, where she's literally, and I mean, opera singer is screaming. She's actually screaming, Where were you when your son needed you? We didn't come to America! Uh, It's just screaming, and two seconds later, the most perfect voice you've ever heard. Yeah. How? (laughs) How did you accomplish that? Uh, she's just, if she's one of the, we talked in Marnie about opera acting that transcends the form. She's one of the very few where her acting always transcended the form, no matter what role she was playing. And so then she finally has dialogue here, 
and she's delivering it like she's been an actress in straight plays for years. She's yeah. not phased. She's not phased by anything in this show. She's game. She's out there. She's doing it. God, does she sound terrific. I mean, and this is at the height of her career. This isn't like, okay, I'm close to retiring. I guess I'll go do a Broadway musical. Um, Carousel, are you hiring a Nettie? <laughs> she's leading a brand new musical, and she's doing it with a plum. And... Again, if Rags had won, I think it would at the very least have a Tony for score and a Tony for Teresa Stratus. She's just everything you want in a leading lady. And then because the voice is the voice, you have Charles Strauss stretching his abilities as a composer and really writing and not worrying about can this person sing this? No, she absolutely can sing whatever he writes. So he's able to use his full capabilities. Uh-huh. It's a very special performance that's going to stick with you. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. So, we just I just want to say, before we move on from the cast... Sure. Such a high performance level. The cast here is unthinkable. They're all fantastic. I don't think there's a weak link. Yeah, I'll agree with you. And so heroically led by Trace Estratus. A fine company all around. All right, so then I guess all that's left to do is talk about this video. Um, you know, here's my thing with it. If it, It's like uh, if you've seen a video from the 1980s on Broadway, you've seen this video. It's um, They all seem to be shot like incredibly similarly. They all sort of typically are circulated with about the same amount of generation loss. Um, it's shot from a great angle. You're always able to make out the action very clearly. And the colors have uh, faded immensely. But it hasn't, uh, it hasn't really lost the picture, which is good. Um, shot pretty well. You're not really left wanting. Uh, they don't ever really get close-close. But... It's good at capturing the action and good at capturing the staging. They, ca um, they capture some facial expressions. Which they capture some, yeah. is a little surprising for the time. I think it's a fantastic video for the 1980s. Yeah. There there were a couple, especially because, you know, I, I it's something about this specific style of video filming. It has such a distinct style. I don't know whether or not all of these, like, you know, widely circulated videos were filmed by the same person, but they all have very sim similar characteristics and similar traits. It seems like and they're, they're all there to document captures. the show. Yeah, exactly, which is exactly what we really need, especially from the 80s where we're getting one video if we're lucky, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like if we're, getting, if we're lucky enough to get a video from the 80s, thank goodness that we're getting a capture of the production. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy with this video. It's a great video. The sound could be a little better, but I think that has to do with generation. That's generation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'd give this video like an A minus. I'd give it an A minus too. Great. And that's us talking about rags. Um, Dan, I would toss you a segue for this next show, but I have absolutely no clue about anything about it. So why don't you lead us into next week's discussion of Sweet Smell of Success? Yeah, so, also from 1986, Smile, 
Marvin Hamlish, score by Marvin Hamlish. Great score by Marvin Hamlish. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. And then, of course, my favorite Marvin Hamlish score is Sweet Smell of Success. Yet another flop. We're doing two back-to-back flops? Yes, and Sweet Smell of Success, it's going to be terrific, people. It's a very young Kelly O'Hara. It's Brian Darcy James. It's John Lithgow. Whoa. It's... Oh my god, I'm excited now. Scored by Marvin Hamlish. Directed by Nicholas Heitner. What could go wrong? <laughs> Enjoyable flops. I'm excited flops. to hear what could go wrong. Enjoyable <laughs> flops. That's our corner of the sky right now. Get that? That's a Stephen Schwartz reference because it's the first time Who's we that? covered a Stephen Schwartz show. I, I, that's how good I am. I'm just putting in little references. And I got you to walk into a wicked reference without even knowing it. I am terrific. You're welcome for listening to this episode. (laughs) 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 See you all next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Join us next week when we discuss the sweet smell of success on Broadway, February 26, 2002. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Rags! And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute the recordings discussed here and...